Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's defiance in his public rejection of the U.S. administration's case for a Palestinian state, following Biden's call for a two-state solution and the ending of Israel's war in Gaza. We'll go to Israel to discuss how Iran, through its proxies, seems to be in the driver's seat in the Middle East and appears to be in a symbiotic relationship with Netanyahu, who is all in with Trump and will drag his war out to hurt Biden, who clearly does not want the U.S. to be sucked into another war in the region. Joining us is Haggai Batar, an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist. He's the executive director of the 972 magazine. Then, with Hamas more popular than ever in the region, we'll assess the possibility of a new front opening in Lebanon, which is a failing state poised to fail completely should war break out between Israel and Hezbollah. Joining us to discuss Lebanon's descent into dysfunction as warlords continue to act with impunity is Dalal Mawad, an independent award-winning Lebanese journalist based in Paris, France. She is working as a freelance producer for CNN in Paris and as a journalism professor at Science Po. Previously, she was a senior producer with the Associated Press based in Lebanon when twin blasts rocked Beirut on August the 4th of 2020 and covered the explosion and its aftermath, as well as Lebanon's economic and financial crisis since 2019. She's the author of the new book, All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation, and The Women Who Survive. Then finally we'll examine the DOJ scathing report on law enforcement's mishandling of the 2022 Uvalde massacre of schoolchildren, which had 381 armed Texas police standing by for 77 minutes as 19 kids and two teachers were shot and bled out. Joining us to discuss how the parents and relatives of the victims want someone to be held responsible is Brandon Formby, who leads the news desk at the Texas Tribune. Based in Austin, he was previously the night news editor through the first two years of the coronavirus pandemic and the deadly 2021 winter storm. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now from Israel is Haggai Matar, who's an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist. He's the executive director of the 972 magazine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Haggai Matar. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Haggai. And on Friday, President Biden spoke with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the first time since December the 23rd. This was a day after the Israeli prime minister said that he was opposed to the idea of a Palestinian statehood and effectively went on Israeli television and more or less said, I'm standing up against the Americans who are trying to force me to doing stuff I don't want to do. How is that playing in Israel? Well, I think there's this double play that Netanyahu has been doing for so many years. And, and I can say, you know, just today, uh, he tweeted that he will oppose any Palestinian state. So uh, this this double play of telling the world in English what the world wants to hear, and specifically Joe Biden saying, yes, well, I'm not ruling out anything, I will discuss, but at the same time talking to his base that wants to hear staunch opposition to uh, any form of Palestinian state, and saying, I'm with you 100%, there will not be Palestinian state, and 
it's been his political project for the past 15 years or more to prevent the formation of a Palestinian state to sustain apartheid. Um, so I think, you know, we should judge him by his words in Hebrew and his actions and not his promises to President Biden. But, Haggai, what is his base? I mean, Netanyahu's polling at 15% approval. So his base is just the far right, isn't it? Well, there are still a lot of people who would vote Likud, um, and he wants to keep them on board. There are the far right that can't form a government by themselves, so he needs them to still support him. Uh, he has more of an ally in the far right than he has with the center or the left. Um, and then I think what he's trying to do, has been trying to do for the past couple of months, trying to kind of rebuild his uh, standing in the Israeli public, is to take control of the narrative. And I think he's been doing that very well, whereas very few people in Israeli politics right now are offering any kind of narrative about what happens next in the long run. Netanyahu is building a very strong narrative saying the world is demanding of us a Palestinian state. I'm the only one who can prevent that, implying that the, his competitors, especially people like Benny Gantz, will cave to this pressure and create a formation of Palestinian state. And, and he's the only one who can stop it. And he's counting on kind of rallying the right around him once again. And I think he may be right. So does the Israeli public then, they don't want a Palestinian state? I take it the level of hatred between the Palestinians and the Israelis are at an all-time high. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's been the case for quite some time now that there is no serious uh, public in Israel, a significant portion of the public in Israel that supports the formation of Palestinian states, that supports ending apartheid. Um, and... You know, that's been part of Israeli politics for a very long time in, in great and due to Netanyahu's removing the Palestinian issue from the public agenda. Um, and right now, I think there's a big public on the center and even the left. It's kind of confused and they don't know what to do next. And he's offering answers for the right and for some of the people who are confused in the center and saying, you know, if you oppose a Palestinian state, which which a lot of people do right now, you have to stay with me. So is Netanyahu essentially going to drag this war out and hurt Biden? I don't think there's any mystery that he wants Trump to come back, isn't it? Isn't that pretty clear? And it seems that uh, everything that's happened since Hamas attacked Israel in that brutal way on uh, October the 7th, it's basically hurt Biden. Yes, I think Netanyahu, I mean, Trump is one factor in his calculation. Uh, I think the broader calculation is just biding time. There was a sense right after October 7th that being the prime minister uh, residing um, when the greatest catastrophe in Israeli history occurred, his political career is over. That was the, the overarching uh, understanding on October 8th. Um, I think three and a half months in, it's not as, as clear anymore. Uh, and he's basically banking on the fact that as long as he can keep his government intact, as long as he can stay in power, the more he can reshape the public perception of him, of Israeli leadership, of what where to next, uh, and, and hope that people forget his responsibility in October 7th basically, in the massacre and allowing that something like that to happen. So I think, you know, banking on a Trump second presidency is definitely a part of that, but also locally, domestically, hoping that people just forget about October 7th and see him as an, an Mr. Security and the savior of Israel once again um, will just happen over time. And I think, again, he might be right about that. So... Given that grim reality, the opposition then, Benny Gantz, for example, isn't he restrained because he's a part of the war cabinet? Well, yes. Um, and I think a lot of commentators are estimating that we will see the, the Gantz party leave 
the coalition and the war cabinet within about a month. That is not unlikely. The feeling is that we've gone through one phase of the war to another phase that the government is saying will last a year or many years. Um, and this is the point where their differences start coming out. I don't think that Gant is a proponent of a Palestinian state, but he is, for example, very much more committed to freeing hostages than Netanyahu. I think for Netanyahu, the notion of a prisoner exchange deal is just something that he cannot sell to his base. Um, and for as far as he's concerned, the war will go on and no more hostages will be released. And I think Gantz and Eisenkot in, in the um, kind of internal opposition within the government right now, they're feeling more and more uncomfortable with this. They are feeling like truce um, and some prisoner exchange is the, becoming the top priority. So I think around that seizure, uh, probably we'll see the, the government splitting and uh, guns living. But in terms of Israeli public opinion, are the Israeli people in any way concerned about America's support for Israel, which is eroding, particularly amongst young Americans? And it doesn't help when you have this high-handed, arrogant character, Netanyahu, basically saying to his own public, uh, you know, I'm going to tell the Americans to get lost. They can't tell me what to do. Well, the Americans basically have given you $270 billion in military and economic aid since World War II, and they continue to veto all kinds of UN resolutions against Israel. I mean, the U.S. goes to bat for Israel almost unconditionally. So is there any concern in Israel that somehow as soon, and if it's not already happening, the American public is starting to wonder, what do we get out of supporting Israel? I think the, the answer is, is in the question, in the sense that no matter what has been happening here on the ground and no matter what American presidents were saying was American policy, for example, supporting two-state solution, the aid has been unconditional. So I think the last time we've seen aid actually being conditional on Israeli behavior um, was in 1990 with Bush the father. Um, so I think Israelis have come to assume that no matter what American presidents say, aid will keep on coming, um, military support will keep on coming, the videos in the UN will keep on coming. So it's about, you know, is the relationship warm or getting slightly chillier? But that's just words. Um, and as long as aid does not become actually conditional on anything, uh, Israelis are just not paying attention. You can see a few people in the elites are talking about, well, we need to be paying attention to what's happening in colleges, what's happening in American public opinion. But as long as that doesn't transfer into policy, the vast majority of the population is not interested in American public opinion. So what do you think is happening in the broader arena in terms of Obviously, Iran and its axis of resistance is definitely flexing its muscles. Some people suggest that Iran is carefully trying to avoid an all-out war, and we know from the U.S. perspective the last thing that Biden needs is another war in the Middle East, and he's doing everything he can to quieten things down. But on the other hand, the Iranians keep tweaking the U.S. through their proxies and with Hamas and the IRGC in, in Syria and Iraq and uh, the Houthis in Yemen. And Iran's obviously overall strategy is to try and drive the United States out of the, out of the Middle East and also replace Israel with Palestine. That's their stated goal. And that's why they have the, what they call the axis of resistance. And my sense is that the US because it keeps signaling the last thing we want is a war with Iran, that Iran has a lot more leverage now than it's ever had. And it's likely to continue to kind of provoke. How do you, how do you read it? I think you're right. Um, and we, we have seen the U.S. put some boundaries on uh, kind of Iran and its proxies, Actions we've seen, you know, the recent attacks on Houthis in, in Yemen, 
we've seen you know um, the, the aircraft carrier basically parked outside of uh, Israel, uh, kind of signaling to Hezbollah and to Iran, you know, don't get involved, keep this. You know, obviously there has been a lot of violence and conflict and death around the Israeli-Lebanese border, but but both sides seem to be trying to avoid all-out war. Um, so, so I think the U.S. has kind of drawn some boundaries, but on the greater picture, you're right that Iran is gaining from this reality of violence, gaining support and more freedom and more control, uh, not more dominance throughout the region. Uh, I think the, the question is how to respond to that. For many Israelis, the answer is, you know, this is an existential threat and it needs to be put down with brute force. Um, I think that the only way to challenge this axis of resistance is by ending the occupation, ending apartheid, moving to Israeli-Palestinian peace and to Israeli integration in the Middle East, as proposed in the Saudi initiative of you know, 2002, uh, that Israel has never picked up or really responded to. Um, I think that would be an actual challenge that Iran would not necessarily know how to deal with uh, and will kind of take out the, 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 the sting out of this axis of resistance. Um, but, you know, that's not very likely to happen in the very near future. But given these tensions, and on Saturday, the Israelis struck a, a group of senior Iranian IRGC officials, intelligence officials in Damascus, as the IRGC retaliates against the Americans in Erbil, Erbil northern Iraq, as they did recently, and in Syria and Iraq, if a bunch of Americans get killed, What's it going to do? I mean, there's no, no question that Biden does not want a Middle East war. It's the last thing. And by the way, the American people don't want a Middle East war. They're, they're done with it. Look what happened with Iraq and Afghanistan, a complete waste of lives and treasure. So this is a very difficult situation for Biden, isn't it? If uh, things get out of hand, there's no appetite for war. And I'm sure that emboldens the Iranians, uh, particularly the IRGC. Um, yes, you're you're right. That's where we are. It's a it's a very very precarious situation. Uh, and and as much as uh, a war could be, you know, costly in terms of lives and, and treasure for Americans, it's much more so for for us over here. The the risk does seem uh, very very real and threatening. And is the West Bank incredibly explosive, as as I'm assuming it is, given? That you know, we know, for example, we're talking about Iran being popular and that, and the axis of resistance gaining strength. Hamas is incredibly popular on the West Bank and throughout the Middle East, is it not? Yeah, well, as part of Netanyahu's policy, um, he has been derailing the the Palestinian Authority, um, mocking it, undermining it for many years, including by propping up Hamas and supporting. Uh, the separation between Fatah and Hamas in the West Bank and Gaza, all the things that contributed to um, October 7th, essentially. And now he's not changing that policy. You know, where both local, uh, some military and some pol political leaders are saying, well, we need to double down on, on our partnership with the Palestinian Authority. And today we're saying the opposite. He's saying we will not allow the Palestinian Authority to grow. The Palestinian Authority is our enemy. Um, so when when the Palestinian left has basically almost entirely disappeared in, in the West Bank and Gaza as a political force, um, and the two dominant parties are Fatah and Hamas, Fatah has nothing to offer people other than continued collaboration with Israeli security apparatus and prevention of any form of struggle. Um, selling this idea of we'll reach independence through negotiations, whereas Palestinians see that the other side is not interested. Uh, and so Hamas is the only option they have left. It's it's a tragic, terrible reality, but, but that's where people are at. And yes, that is a very dangerous situation. Well, Haggai Matal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Haggai Matar, who's a, an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist and the executive director of the 972 magazine, and he joined us from Israel.
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the possibility of a new front opening in Lebanon, which is a failing state poised to fail completely should war break out between Israel and Hezbollah. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dalal Mawad, who's an independent, award-winning Lebanese journalist based in Paris, France. She is working as a freelance producer for CNN in Paris and as a journalism professor at Science Po. Previously, she was a senior producer with the Associated Press based in Lebanon when twin blasts rocked Beirut on August the 4th of 2020, and she covered the explosion and its aftermath, as well as Lebanon's economic and financial crisis since 2019. And she's the author of the new book, All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation, and The Women Who Survive. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dalal Mawad. Thank you, Ian, for having me on the show. Well, thanks for joining us, and obviously I want to talk to you about your book, but as much as the explosion on August the 4th, 2020, exposed what is on the brink of a failed state, if Lebanon is drawn into the current war in Gaza with these cross-border exchanges between Hezbollah and Israel, then the country will truly be a totally failed state. I mean, they, they cannot survive another war, and as much as apparently what's left of the Lebanese government apart from Hezbollah itself, what kind of leverage do they have on Hezbollah to try and restrain them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And definitely my book is related to what's going on today in the south of Lebanon, because in my book, women, um, you know, tell the stories of protracted conflict and violence in Lebanon, including uh, Israel's uh, wars, the civil war, um, etc. And it seems like history repeats itself in Lebanon. And here we are uh, again, caught in another a cycle of, of violence. When it comes to uh, the Lebanese state, I mean, to be very honest, today the decision of war and peace is not in the hands of Lebanon's uh, state or uh, government. Uh, Lebanon. Um, is taken hostage by Hezbollah's decision today to go to war um, or not with Israel. Lebanon is already part of this war. There's daily uh, shelling and cross-border fire. As you uh, mentioned, more than 70,000 Lebanese have been displaced. The economy, which was already collapsed, is affected um, furthermore. And the Lebanese government itself, the foreign uh, minister of Lebanon, in an interview with uh, CNN, which um, I work with, uh, did admit that they are powerless, that this decision uh, is not within um, uh, their hands. And should this war um, expand even uh, further, uh, once again, it's not uh, necessarily something that the Lebanese want. Uh, and as you said, um, it's not something that Lebanon can take because it's already a failed state. It's already a collapsed um, economy. The World Bank has described Lebanon's economic crisis as one of the worst since the 19th century. Uh, so you can only imagine, and as I said, we're already feeling the burden of uh, of this uh, conflict. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know where this is going. It's still unclear. People have been living on the edge. I was in Beirut recently since October, um, fearing that, you know, uh, the war is going to come and knock at their door once again. And this is a war they cannot really bear um, Uh, And what's happening in the South, um, you know, the South is part of Lebanon. So Lebanon is really part of of this war, is already affecting us. Agriculture production, Israel has been shelling uh, agricultural land with uh, phosphorus, white phosphorus, affecting uh, olive trees, production. As I said, people are displaced, businesses are affected. Um, So things are looking dire already uh, now. But I mentioned uh, what leverage exists against Hezbollah and who could restrain them. 
In the US, of course, the Secretary of Defense has been working with his Israeli counterpart, trying to restrain the Israelis from provoking the war further. Mm. There's some question as to whether Netanyahu has ambitions to drag the United States into a full regional war. But in terms of leverage against Iran itself, which clearly has influence over its proxies, both in Gaza and Yemen, mm. uh, in Syria, Iraq, and in Lebanon, the U.S. doesn't seem to have much leverage against uh, Iran because for the last decade or so, the U.S. has been trying to restrain, trying to make deals with the, the JCOP, the P5 plus one. Mm. So do you think that the U.S. Is, really has doesn't have leverage over Iran. Iran basically is free to push the envelope. I don't know how far they want to push it, but it doesn't seem that they're afraid of the United States at all. I would have to disagree. I think Iran is still trying to avoid this war. The Israelis have been poking the bear. I mean, all these targeted assassinations of top commanders just today in Damascus, four Revolutionary Guard intelligence uh, commanders have been uh, assassinated. The killing of the Hamas uh, top commander in in, in Beirut. Uh, There have been instances where you would think the red line has been crossed and there will be um, further escalation, and this has not happened. Uh, I think the Iranians still want to negotiate. Uh, they're trying to increase their leverage, for sure, in the region through this uh, through this war. But I wouldn't say that they're, you know, uh, just shutting the door and not listening to the U.S. Whereas I would tell you that the Israelis are not, and I would have to agree with you. And we we've heard Netanyahu uh, two days ago saying he doesn't even believe in a Palestinian statehood and the right uh, for Palestinians to have a state. And we are seeing the gap further widening with uh, President Biden and the American um, administration. Um, I really think Hezbollah and Iran are still, um, you know, uh, taking precautions as in they we don't know this is a very very tricky game Ian. Uh, and i think the answer lies within hezbollah and and and, and iran and israel I'm, I'm not here in a position to know because i also think israel's strategy is unclear to the americans themselves we really don't know where this is uh, going but it's a tricky and dangerous game because we don't know when the red lines of either side are going to be crossed and this will uh, just explode and to be honest, this is already a regional war. You're seeing things happening in different countries. It's no longer limited to Gaza and the south of Lebanon. Well, clearly, Netanyahu's polling at about 15%. And so the longer the war goes on, the longer he stays in power. So he has no incentive to end this war and has all kinds of incentives to escalate. And the U.S. appears to be helpless. And Biden is in an election mode. And the last thing mm-hmm. he needs is another war. The American people are fed up with Middle East wars where we lost lives and treasure in Afghanistan and Iraq and left the, these countries in ruin. So there's no appetite for war here. So I'm just wondering at what point, as you just pointed out, uh, Dalal, that an accident, you know, if, if a bunch of American soldiers get killed in an Iranian strike in Iraq, uh, they, they actually, the IRGC just struck recently in Erbil, and just yesterday another missile attack on a U.S. air base in Iraq. And I think today's, uh, today's operation is a retaliation to what happened uh, in, in Erbil. So it's still tit for tat for now. Right, but, but that was an Israeli operation, not an American operation in the bombing. Yeah, in, but I, I, I don't uh, differentiate, to be honest. I think it's uh, this is how they operate. You know, that they, they will go after American interests, Israeli interests. It's it's how the Iranians, you know, um, uh, operate. They have been, you know, the, the, the Houthi targets also. They've been targeting all kind of ships and saying they're Israel-linked and this is in solidarity with, with Gaza. So this is what a proxy war now uh, looks um, in, in in the region. Um, but I would have to disagree with you that I think the Americans still can still have leverage over the Israelis and are not doing enough. And I think the fact that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has not been resolved to this day is because the U.S. have been given a free pass to successive Israeli governments who are really, um, you know, um, just ignoring, ignoring uh, what's going on on, on on the ground and have jeopardized uh, a two-state uh, solution. And the Americans just keep turning a blind eye to all the war crimes that are being committed by the, uh, by the uh, Israelis. Um, 
And they do have leverage. They have leverage over the Israelis. They're just not using it, in my opinion. Well, that's the mystery. And the only the only analysis that I can see that makes any sense is that Biden made a choice right at the beginning of the Gaza war to hug Netanyahu to keep the political donors on side. But he didn't calculate how young Americans, particularly young progressive Democrats, mm -hmm. would react. And they are reacting very strongly. So I think the tide is turning against Israel in terms of the broader not the just public, the, uh, yeah, support. not just not just mm -hmm. the global south, but even in Europe and and even here in the United States. So let's turn to your book, though, because there's an inescapable theme of misogyny, and <laughs> there, there's no question that misogyny rules. And as much as the Iranian uh, revolutionary government, uh, the theocracy, says it wants justice for the Palestinians. They certainly don't have justice for their own women who rose up against them and were brutally put down. And it does seem that the explosion in the port that you've written about is kind of a metaphor for the dysfunction of, of a bunch of warlords, men, squabbling over power. And meanwhile, hundreds of tons of ammonium nitrate are sitting in the, in the warehouses on, on the port and an accident takes place, and you basically have a small nuclear device in terms of the explosive power that goes mm -hmm. off. And to this very day, the two MPs are largely responsible, Ali Hassan Halil and Ghazi Zeta of the Shia Amal Party, they've been re-elected in 2022, uh, and they're using their political immunity to escape justice. So it's really got to be despairing for you and your women friends who have to somehow carry on. Uh, yes, indeed. And I wouldn't call the Beirut explosion an accident. I think it was a crime. And even under Lebanese law, um, this is criminal negligence because these MPs or ministers that you mentioned and other officials, um, they knew about the dangers of ammonium nitrate and did not take the appropriate action to safely store it or, or get rid of it. This is there's enough evidence to to point to to that, and and unfortunately the problem here really um, Ian is impunity, and you just touched upon this using political immunity, but also the national investigation into the explosion four years on um, is stalled. The leading judge has not been able to do his work because these politicians have been filing lawsuit after lawsuit against him, blocking him from doing his work. Uh, the public prosecutor, that's the highest prosecutor in Lebanon, who is affiliated to the speaker and to those MPs that you just named, um, went furthermore, forged, uh, he charged, uh, um, uh, he filed, sorry, a, a lawsuit against uh, the judge and released all of the suspects that were detained in, in the explosion. So today, the, the victims, the families of the victims are nowhere near knowing the truth. And many of them are part of my book. These women who've lost loved ones, lost everything on that day, they're nowhere near truth and injustice. And I think this is the main problem of Lebanon, but also the Middle East. And it's why, again, history keeps repeating itself. It's impunity. It's the lack of justice and um, accountability. And decisions always made by men, rightly, as, as you say so. I, I beg anyone to, uh, to argue uh, against that. Um, and so if there is no accountability in, in Lebanon, I don't think there's any hope for these women uh, in the book who've suffered and lost a lot or for even Lebanon, because, you know, my, my book is called All She Lost, but the she refers not just to the women uh, stories, but also to Lebanon as a nation which really is not a nation today, or to Beirut, uh, the city who lost so much on, on that day and keeps losing because of uh, bad governance. Lebanon's problem is one of political governance. Well, but it's had so many outside forces dumping refugees on them. I mean, starting in 48, with all of the Palestinians who fled from Israel, they're still in those camps. And then the war in, in Syria, I believe, what, Two or three million refugees from Syria? No, was... that's that's not the correct uh, number. What there number are about is... a million, uh, about a million and, and a half registered a half. today. Yeah, it, it, 
There are a lot of numbers out there that are a bit inflated. We have to be careful. But yeah, there are also about 300,000 Palestinian refugees, different generations started coming in in 48. Lebanon has had an open door policy, is generous uh, to these people who have had to flee their homes because of persecution and and war. Uh, but the problem is uh, on the long term, Lebanon never had any solutions for these refugees, never succeeded in even integrating them. We're talking about generations of Palestinian refugees who have no right to work, who still live in, you know, shanty towns or what we call like uh, camps um, in very precarious uh, conditions with very high unemployment rates. Uh, it's the same now for Syrians because the Lebanon government had no clear policy on how to welcome and support uh, these refugees living in informal tented settlements, uh, etc. So the refugee community ended up being a burden on, on Lebanon um, for two reasons. One, the lack of clear policies towards them from the Lebanese government. What is it that we want from these people? Why did we welcome them? Uh, and the lack of long-term solution as in the sense of uh, the right of return for refugees, returning uh, to, to Syria in the case of the, the Syrian regime and the obstacle it's, it's put there. And I think it's the international community too, the West, who has not done enough, uh, you know, to... Um, uh, give these people legal pathways towards Europe or anywhere else, or even negotiate where to end the the conflict that's that's led them to come to uh, to Lebanon. So thinking long term uh, solution to, to, to their problem. Um, and, and yeah, it's um, it's it's a big population, but it's it's not also living well in, in Lebanon. Sure. So but what percentage of the population would you say uh, refugees? <clears throat> Uh, it's a total of 2 million approximately out of uh, 4 or 5. There's no official census in Lebanon. So any right. numbers you are... there. Right. The last census that was done in Lebanon was in 1932. So any figures we have are... Right. Um, but I'm talking about UNHCR numbers when it comes to Syrian refugees. Hmm. And we're talking about um, more than a million, about a million and a half uh, Syrian refugees. Right. Well, let's let's just in the last couple of minutes, though, I wanted to get back to your book because it is heartbreaking mm. and the, and particularly the scene of young, the three-year-old young Isaac sitting down at the breakfast table, his mother's making him breakfast, the blast goes off and a shard of glass uh, impacts his chest and he dies and, and the mother has to carry on and it's just heartbreaking. I mean, those stories, and there are many of them in your book, just are just so wrenching and on top of what we've been talking about the the dysfunction of civil war which we didn't even talk about which went on from 1975 mm. to 1990 the bombings by hezbollah uh, killing harari etc actually a friend of mine an intelligence officer was put in charge of that un investigation and hezbollah put out a death threat on him so again how much would you say misogyny is a part of this this impunity that these warlords have? Um, I wouldn't call it misogyny. Lebanon is a country that discriminates against its women structurally, like in terms of, of laws. It's always been there. And men have been in power. And everything we're seeing today, yes, is the result of those men who are in power and who are ac accountable to no one. So it's Today, it's it's very hard to see Lebanon change with them in power. They're not going to reform themselves. And yes, women have been paying the price uh, for, for this. Um, for those who are listening to us, I don't know if you know, but people think that women in Lebanon live a more liberal life than other Arab countries. It's only partially true. To give you an example, Lebanese women can't give nationality to their children if they're married to a foreigner, whereas if a man marries a foreign woman, he can do that. Um, they're discriminated against in personal status laws, so divorce, inheritance, custody, because um, they are uh, all personal status laws are uh, part of religious courts. There's no civil law. So you can only imagine religious courts discriminating against um, against women. And a lot of the stories in my book uh, talk about this. Women who have had to struggle with these discriminatory laws after losing their spouse, for example, in the Beirut um, explosion. Um, so things are still difficult for women and, you know, their uh, access to uh, to power, to the labor force. The numbers are not very um, encouraging to, to this day. Although, although I would have to admit, feminist movements are really vibrant. They're becoming stronger in, in Lebanon, more vocal. 
but we're we're still not there and there's a lot of work to be done and it's why i chose to write my book from the perspective of women because women are active players in lebanon's history we just don't know it because history is never written from their perspective and that's why i wanted to write you know this modern history the past few years from the lens of women well dalal mawad i thank you so much for joining us and for your new book all she lost the explosion in lebanon the collapse of a nation and the women who survive thank you and again i've been speaking with dalal mawad who's an independent award-winning lebanese journalist based in paris france she is working as a freelance producer for cnn in paris and as a journalism professor at sciences po previously she was a senior producer with the associated press based in lebanon when twin blast rocked beirut in august of the 4th of 2020 and she's covered the explosions in its aftermath as well as lebanon's economic and financial crisis since 2019 and is the author of the new book all she lost the explosion in lebanon the collapse of a nation and the women who survive we're going to take a brief station break and back examining the doj scathing report on the law enforcement mishandling of the 2022 Uvalde massacre of school children which had 381 armed Texas police standing by for 77 minutes as 19 kids and two teachers were shot and bled out. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brandon Formby, who leads the news desk at the Texas Tribune, based in Austin. He was previously the night news editor through the first two years of the coronavirus pandemic and the deadly 2020 winter storm. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brandon Formby. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Justice Department's review of what happened at the Rob Elementary School back in May the 24th of 2022 uh, is unbelievably scathing and i guess the most horrendous uh, not that it's necessarily news but the fact that at least 381 Texas law enforcement personnel with guns stood around for 77 minutes while 19 students uh, died many bled out So I guess at least that gives a lie to the uh, NRA reframe that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yeah, the uh the families have suspected for, you know, months for more than a year um that the delayed response, you know, uh, hundreds of officers waiting 77 minutes to to confront the gunman um you know could have caused some of the casualties. Um, and it uh, n- none of the local investigations uh, from the DA's office, uh, from the, the uh, Texas Department of Public Safety have come out. Um, and so the Justice Department, um, you know, saying that explicitly um, really was a, a, a big moment and kind of a turning point for a lot of families. And it, um, you know, made it official, a, a government agency, you know, the top law enforcement officer in the in the country saying yes uh that delay did cause death yes merrick garland said lives would have been saved if officers had acted quickly to confront the gunman so no question about that but what's happening then with the local district attorney christina mitchell in uvalde uh, she seems to be slow walking the possibility of an investigation She has been uh I mean she has been conducting an investigation um but she has faced a lot of criticism for not turning over details about it um not really speaking publicly about the scope of it although on uh Friday the Uvalde uh local newspaper did report that a grand jury has been impaneled um the grand jury will spend about six months uh investigating the response to the shooting um and just you know pouring over the the you know different evidence uh available different uh investigative documents uh whether or not that means 
that that any officers will face criminal charges remains to be seen. Um, Mitchell is is not discussing so far uh, what the grand jury is looking at or if there are particular charges that she's going for or particular officers that she uh, wants grand jurors to look at. But it seems that the fundamental mistake from the beginning was that the local school police chief, Pete Arandono, categorized what was happening in this active shooter situation as an incident of a barricaded standoff rather than an active shooter scenario. How important was that designation? Extremely important. Um, that, that has been you know, cited as a catastrophic error almost from the get-go um, and you know, was in many ways made formal in the Justice Department report um, because what that kind of did was create a situation where the hundreds of other officers who, who as they showed up, were, were also treating it uh, the same way. Um, but, you know, the report goes further and points out that, you know, even though Aaron Dondo kind of s- started treating it that way, that the hundreds of other officers, at least some of them, should have taken control of the situation, had determined or designated somebody to be an incident commander, and also, you know, relied on their training to go in, and that they had evidence that the uh, shooter was in there and that the the shooter was in there with children. Um, you know, that evidence came in the form of during that 77 minutes, uh, kids inside the classroom were calling 911. Um, and, and also pretty early on, one of the responding officers was telling the other officers that his wife, who was a school teacher in one of the classrooms, uh, had been shot, that she had called him and told him that she had been shot. Um, so, you know, st- the... One of the failures cited in the one of the many failures cited in the report uh, is also that uh, even though Aaron Dondo, you know, kind of uh, started treating it as a barricaded suspect, that over that seventy-seven minutes, um, it you know there was nobody who used all of this information uh, to start to respond differently. Well, in fact, the opposite was happening in terms of some of the political leaders at the time and even after this hideous event. You had Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott praising the officers' courage and running towards gunfire. So the initial, I I recall a scene where there was a kind of a very, very uh, (laughs) violent exchange, if you will, with the officials and with the former Democratic candidate for governor at the time, and they were screaming at each other, and he was, Beto O'Rourke was basically trying to hold these officials responsible, and also the issue of, uh, of proliferation of guns came up. So have they dodged the bullet in terms of really discussing the gun issue here, and particularly did the Justice Department really focus in on it? I mean, the fact is that this kid who was 18 years old. He'd saved up money from a fast food job he had. He bought an arsenal, including two semi-automatic assault rifles, conversion devices to make them a full automatic, thousands of rounds of ammunition. And at 11 a.m. on that same day, he shot his grandmother in the face, and then he texted a 15-year-old girl in Germany who he had an online relationship with, saying he planned to shoot up an elementary school. And then he stole his grandmother's pickup truck and crashed into a ditch and then climbed the fence and then started the the slaughter. So has the issue of the proliferation of guns and the accessibility of guns, particularly with this uh, obviously disturbed 18-year-old boy, come up? Or is is it central in the DOJ report? I would not say that it is central in the DOJ report. It absolutely has come up. Uh, backing up just a little bit, yes, uh, our, our governor, uh, Greg Abbott, the day after the shooting, um, you know, at a press conference, praised law enforcement response and said it, it couldn't, uh, or it, uh, it, it could have been worse um, if, if law enforcement hadn't acted the way that it, it did. Uh, you know, it is now widely believed that is absolutely categorically false. Abbott uh, has since said that he was misled about the res- the law enforcement response to the shooting, um, said that he was livid about it. Um, but the report did criticize, you know, comments like that and several comments made uh, in the initial press conferences after the shooting 
um, and said a lot of the misinformation that officials like Abbott and others you know, disseminated really negatively impacted uh, the the victims' families and, and the town. Um, in in terms of the the gun issue, um, the uh, the shooter did obtain uh, the weapons legally. Um, he bought them right after he turned eighteen. Um, in the legislative session in Texas last year, uh, the first one since the shooting, several several. Uh, families of the victims uh, really pushed uh, lawmakers hard to raise the age uh, to to buy semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21. Um, but it, it did not, it ultimately failed uh, in the legislature. It, it didn't get through. Um, and while I say it was, uh, you know, gu- uh, access to guns was not central to the uh, DOJ report, um, you know, it did say, look, uh, if not explicitly, the implication was, um, you know, if the policy decisions are that uh, people are going to have, um, you know, easy access to guns, then these are the steps that law enforcement agencies need to take to be ready for more mass shootings. Uh, they did explicitly say that every community in America should expect a mass shooting to happen there. And they uh, laid out some recommendations for how law enforcement uh, should be training to be ready for those. Well, though, in contrast to the police standing around for 77 minutes armed, not intervening, the police did handcuff and even pepper sprayed some of the distraught parents who were there at the scene, urging them to do something, right? So that's a pretty appalling contrast, isn't it? Uh, there were a lot of, um, you know, videos the day of the shooting and immediately after that, that you know, can be really hard to watch that show... Um, you know, farther away, like not in the hallway where, um, you know, the officers who ultimately confronted the gunmen were, but, you know, outside the building trying to uh, create a perimeter so other people didn't go inside the building. Um, yeah, the, the the parents had showed up to the school, were waiting for their kid, wanted their kids out of the building. Um, and as it, as that 77 minutes drew on and there, you know, the uh, situation was not uh, resolved. The police did not confront the gunman. Um, I think tensions really rose uh, between officers and uh, a lot of parents and residents. So in terms of the the long delay of 77 minutes, it's pretty clear that a lot of these kids that were shot bled out, right? I mean, one there was one kid that was rescued alive, but he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Uh, yes, I believe there were um, a small handful of um, victims who were uh, pulled out of the classroom who had pulses, um, but but uh, later died. Uh, the DOJ also pointed out how um, you know once um, the the shooter had been killed um, and they were um, you know attending to the victims and medical responders were coming in um, that some children who were already dead were put in ambulances. And uh, others who had gunshot wounds uh, were put on school buses without medical personnel. The the medical response was also heavily faulted in the DOJ report. So you mean that there were wounded kids that were put on a school bus without any medical personnel attending correct. them? That is correct. And driven to the hospital? Correct. And did they survive? That I'm not sure of, and the DOJ report does not get into detailed information about uh, specific individuals. Um, so, you know, where it does say that lives could have been saved, it, it did not point to uh, specific, uh, it did not go into that granular of detail on who right. specifically. Right, but Brandon, if you had 381 Texas law enforcement a personnel with guns at the scene for 77 minutes, you would have thought that they could have brought in some EMS assets with ambulances, surely. There there were EMS assets and, and there there were ambulances. Uh, what the DOJ pointed out is, is part of the problem is that um, the, there was such a lack of coordination and communication. Uh, and it, it kind of painted a picture of just like a really disorganized scramble um, that... Um, you know, some of the ambulances were used for for children who are who had already died. 
So what's then happening? And there hasn't been any, and this is what, of course, the the families in Uvalde that lost their children and lost the two school teachers as well who were killed. There's been no, nobody held to account, let alone the police chief, but also the Texas Department of Public Safety, the the Texas Rangers, they were initially blaming police chief um, Arandondo, but then they're not exactly uh, off the hook, are they? The uh, Justice Department report, uh, they did not name the state trooper, but they did fault uh, at least one state trooper uh, for being among the uh, officers who could have taken control of the situation, who could have um, either made themselves the incident commander or uh, you know, designated somebody else, and who could have started treating the situation uh, much, much earlier uh, as an active shooter incident. So, and as we pointed out earlier, the local DA has, what well, you just say, she just did impanel a grand jury just Correct. now? Correct. Right. Well, that's a little late in the day, but uh, how much pressure do you think coming from the parents is going to result in, in, in some kind of justice for these, the families of the, that lost their children in terms of holding somebody responsible? That that's really hard to say, uh, you know, because the district attorney has been facing pressure from the parents, um, you know, all, within days of of the shooting. It's it's been twenty months um, since then, and there there still hasn't been um, the kind of indictment that the families would like to see. Um, also, the the families put a lot of pressure on uh, the state legislature to, um, you know, raise the age to to buy uh, semi-automatic rifles, um, and they were unsuccessful there. So that really remains to be seen. Well, just in closing, though, it would seem to me for a small town like Uvalde, where many of the citizens lost their children and lost relatives, school teachers, etc., they're wandering you know, around a town where the local cops, where they run into the local cops on a daily basis, and these are the same local cops who stood around for 77 minutes and did nothing. So... I imagine the tensions uh, still exist in within that small, close-knit society. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, they have described uh, those situations, you know, being at a grocery store and, and seeing a law enforcement officer that they uh, know is, you know, uh, among those who waited the 77 minutes uh, while their, their child uh, was in the classroom. Um, they, you know, describe it as being, you know, extremely excruciating, um, to to kind of be in those situations and still not have um, uh, any sort of uh, you know visible movement uh, on a uh, the kind of indictment that they would like to see. So just in closing, then Brandon, will there be some kind of accountability? Do you think will this pressure from the families on the DA finally yield something? I think we'll have to wait and see what the grand jury does. Uh, but I do know uh, that the families will also be watching very closely for the outcome of that. Right. Well, Brandon Formby, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I mean, speaking with Brandon Formby, who leads the news desk at the Texas Tribune based in Austin. He was previously the night news editor through the first two years of the coronavirus pandemic and the deadly 2021 winter storms. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.